Hi, my name is Andrea Bumstead and I am a member at Restore Temecula. If you are new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe the church is not an event, but a family that you belong to. So we would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help in any way, please visit our website at www.RestoreTemecula.com and click on contact. We also have a mobile app with resources, including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on the Apple or Android app store. With all of that said, we hope you enjoy the message. Good morning. Good morning, guys. It's good to see you. Bring it in, bring it in. Anybody like the Encanto soundtrack? Bring it in, bring it in. Um, if, I, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Herrick. I'm one of the pastors here at Restored Temecula. I just realized that I forgot to mention this during family time. Tom's not here. Uh, he sends his love. Tom and Ebony and the girls are down in Restored South Bay, ministering down there. Uh, if you don't know, if you're new, Tom is our lead pastor. And uh, Restored South Bay is one of the churches that's a part of our family of churches. Restored is a, is a family of churches. We're, we're just one of several. And so he sends his love. And um, I'm going to be preaching this morning out of the King and His Kingdom, which is a series through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're actually diving into chapter 4 today, which feels, is anybody else amazed by how quickly we're working through this? I still think it's, I still think it's going to take five years, but at this point, we're making, we're making good progress. Um, so if you haven't been around, I can give you kind of the short version of what we've covered. So far, we've seen a lot about Jesus, who He is, the King and His Kingdom, and we've seen him honored. If you were here when we talked about the, the, the magi, the wise men, they came and they honored Jesus. So it's kind of like the, it was representative of the nations coming, coming to honor the king, not just of Israel, but the world. So he was honored. Um, he was also hunted by King Herod. We spent a whole, you got way more info than you ever wanted to know about King Herod, but you got it. He was hunted by King Herod. He was a threat to the kingdom of Herod, the kingdom of one of the kings of this world. Um, and then last week, if you weren't here, you see Jesus again. He was, he was once again honored, but this time by God himself, who said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we're going to see Jesus now hungry. He's in the wilderness. He's going to be tested, and he's, he's hungry. So we're going um, to basically find out, like, why was Jesus tested? The king of the nations, the king of the world, the son of God underwent testing. Why? What was the point of that? What does it mean for us? We're going to unpack all that today. So before we do, let's pray, and then, uh, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to open up your scriptures, open up your word, and to be shaped and formed uh, as we behold Jesus, as we see him, as we understand him, as we grasp him, as we grapple with him. Uh, we get to become like him, and I thank you for that opportunity I pray that this morning, like wherever everyone is at, I pray that you would give every person what they need as they head into their weeks to really consider him, to think about him, to draw implications from his life, and to be encouraged and built up to know him and be one of his people in the world. We love you. We thank you. I pray that you'd help me. You'd help me get, um, really share what, what I think you've put on my heart and then kind of move out of the way so that you can do what only you can do transform hearts. Make us new. God, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay. Um, what is the hardest time of a person's life? What is the hardest time of a person's life? Um, the answer is sixth grade. Pretty much for everybody. <laughs> Junior high, most difficult time I've ever faced. And... Um, I had many, many, many failures during that time. My favorite failure was actually in the sixth grade. Um, I was uh, swept up into a cheating ring that got um, caught. Uh, I'm going to tell you that story here in a second. Um, basically, here's what ended up happening. I lived in, in Southern Puerto Rico for a long time. I moved to Southern California to uh, go to school in San Juan Capistrano at the mission down there. And then I moved to Minnesota, came back for, uh, for sixth grade. 
And what happened is there's all these people that I had kind of forgotten that we existed that all of a sudden were like, oh, the burgers are back. I have a twin brother, Lewis and I. We were back at the school that we were at before. And so we basically made friends again, but these became like our lifelong friends. In fact, I'm still on like text threads with a bunch of these friends from sixth grade today. I get several texts a week from them. Um, I can tell you what they're texting, usually texting about, reminiscing about the old days. But my point is, this is like a formative time for me with these friendships. And something really interesting happened. We had this uh, fascinating teacher, Miss Nipert. And Miss Nipert, what she ended up doing was she kind of let us, she let, she let us have a lot of autonomy. She let, she let us make a lot of choices. And we got to pick where we sat in the classroom. So I want you to imagine like these, these chairs, right? Imagine there's three and like little desks and then three. It's like three and three looking at each other. So it would be like me, my brother, and our four best friends. And we're just like looking at each other. The, the teacher's that way, and then we're facing this way. And there's a whole classroom of like little six desk pods, if that makes any sense. And so what she ended up doing was she would give us homework, she would give us tests, she'd give us quizzes. And when it came time to grade them, she let us grade each other's tests and quizzes. Which already, you're probably like, why did she do that? I'm like, okay. But um, uh, I, look, I was married to a t- I, I am married to a teacher, still married to that teacher. Heather, I love you. I'm going to be checking in. Um, she's at home with sick kids. I am married to Heather, who was a teacher. And so I know that grading gets gnarly. If you, if you have a home life and stuff, it takes a long time to grade these papers. So anyway, so she had us grade each other's papers. She did something really interesting. She had us grade each other's papers. She didn't have us turn those papers in. She just had us tell her what we got on the homework or on the quiz or on the test. Some of you already know where this is going. But basically, we discovered fairly quickly that you didn't have to do any of the homework, quizzes, or tests, and you could just say, oh, I got, I got a 95. Shucks, 19 out of 20. I missed that one vocab word. I thought anthology meant antology, the study of ants. <sighs> I'm going to get it next time. You know, like that could literally be the conversation that I would have with my teacher. And I'd get a 95, even if I didn't do anything. And so this, was, this happened, and it happened, and it happened. It just became the way that things were in that sixth grade classroom. And then one day, she was like, okay, turn in your tests. After, you know, we had said our grades and stuff like that. So it was one of those moments where I was like, you know, like, the whole class, it was just like, silence. The cheating ring was over. (laughs) Needless to say, it was done. Um, What's the point in telling you this story? You know, there's a whole lot of kids in detention, like a whole class basically full of them. Um, As I was thinking about the particular passage that I'm going to be teaching on today, I was really drawn to this story. Clearly, I like talking about myself, so I'm going to tell you stories about my life. But also, I think there was something like deeper that was happening there. Um, there was a test, and it revealed what was already there. That test revealed what was already there, basically in secret. And the reality was that my formation as a student was more like fiction than fact. It just wasn't really happening. Did I actually do the work? The test showed that no, I didn't, I didn't do the work. And as I was thinking about it this week, it's because I wanted grades without really grinding. I wanted the six-pack without sweating it out. Which, coincidentally, years later, I got an ab belt. Anybody know what those are? It's just electrical shocks, you know? Um, put a little gel on there. That <laughs> one hurt a little, but I'm all right. You know? When you, you got those to dinner, and it's like, what's that burning flesh smell? Like, oh, it's me. <laughs> Why is dad's pacemaker malfunctioning? Oh, shoot. He's caused, like, electrical issues. <laughs> Turn that off. Anyway, we, we, there's a sense of, like, that temptation is always there to really, like, get the grades without grinding it out. Um, as I was thinking about this week, what does that have to do with anything we're talking about? Sometimes we want discipleship without development, if we're honest. We want discipleship without development. If you're here and you don't know what a disciple is, I'm so glad you're here. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. And there's times in which we don't really want to develop as a disciple. We just want to be mature. We want, to be, we want influence without actually being influential in reality. Without having character. 
Um, and this is one of the, and as I chewed on this text in particular this week, it hit me like a ton of bricks. This is one of the great temptations that we face as disciples. The enemy uses this. The Christian has an enemy, a tempter who comes. Now, we've seen the enemy from the very beginning, and I'll explain that in a little bit. But the enemy wants us to throw off our development. Just as students have to study, disciples have to develop. And each of us are going to face tests that reveal the truth about our development. It's sort of like that sixth grade test that I was telling you guys about. It's sort of like we have to show our work. And when that moment comes, the test comes, it's like when the teacher was like passing your, your grades, passing your, your homework, or your test or whatever it was, there was nowhere for me to hide. Like nowhere. If I had been smart, I would have had my friend like fill in the answers as, as she's giving them because she would call out the answers and then you grade it. But we got so lazy that we just stopped doing that. And they would just blank. That's not my point. The point isn't to keep the cheating thing going, but yeah, this is not like, how do you cheat better? But the, here's the thing. I had nowhere to hide. I was exposed. That's, what, that's my point. And fascinatingly, my teacher, as I thought about this, she wasn't, she wasn't tempting me. She wasn't like luring me in to do what was wrong. That was not her point. But she did call on me to show my work. That was the test. And the problem was I had no work to show her because I hadn't done it. And I had a long time of detention to think about that. And the rest of my class was there with me. A corporate fail. So, sink or swim together, guys. Today we sink. So, but if you're a disciple, you know, you're going to have tests. They're going to reveal your readiness for what? For kingdom work. It's a big deal. And so I was just thinking about it. It's sort of like that first summer swim. Uh, which when you're younger, it doesn't really matter as much. But when you're 37, like that first, you know, the, whatever it is, May 30th, it's like, it's time for the swim. Have you been working out? Yeah. <laughs> to take out the shirt. Uh, no, no, I just like wearing swim shirts, you know? I'm very fair. It's like, you're Puerto Rican. It's like, we're not the same, bro. <laughs> you don't want to be revealed, you know? The training and development, it's, it's of utmost importance. And that first day of summer, it's coming for everybody. It reveals the truth. And the point isn't to look good. I'm not saying this to, like, to get us to think about looking good. Jesus has a lot to say about people who just look good on the outside, but inside are full of, of brokenness and, and evil. So I'm not talking about like, looking good on the outside. It's about being ready for a mission. Every disciple is being developed for a mission. Uh, one of the things I've been thinking about all week is Navy SEALs. Uh, anybody ever seen the Navy SEALs training out in San Diego? Anybody know? We got one. Okay. So they train down there. Yeah, Mark, back there. Um, they train down there, and they go through crazy, rigorous training. Uh, you actually have to become basically like a sailor before you can become a SEAL. And they have to show that they're really steady under the most stressful circumstances you can imagine. Why is that? It's because when they're on a mission, which is super important, they have to be ready. And they don't want, their superiors don't want them to get destroyed by the circumstances that they face but actually to deliver in the midst of them. And you, you really can't fake it as a SEAL. You can't fake your formation as a SEAL and eventually get on a mission and be like, yeah, I'm ready for this. Like, no, you, you'll actually you'll jeopardize the mission and your team. And the test, it reveals the truth of a disciple's training, a disciple's preparation for the kingdom. So today we're going to explore Jesus' test and find out what he was made of and then what it means for us as disciples as we face our own test. If you have a Bible, jump over to Matthew. Chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we're going to have all the verses up here. Uh, so the test reveals the truth about our trust. By the way, today, I'm either going to animate you or annoy you with alliterations. Just telling you that right now. This is not how it usually goes, but that's how it's going to go today. All right? So here's, here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. Um, if you, uh, if you aren't familiar with this, that's a great thing. I'm going to break this down. In the Bible, from basically page three on, there's this reality that God is a God of generosity and goodness and kindness. Who wants to, like, he wants to guide us into the good life, okay? And he wants, he's basically saying, like, be with me. Get around me. Grow with me. I'm going to give give you good things, and then you're going to give your life for other people. That's, that's ultimately what's at the heart of God 
over and over and over and over again. You see it from the beginning with Adam and Eve, even. And then what happens? There's a tempter. There's a tempter. In the garden, you know, represented by the, by the snake, by the serpent. Um, we get really hung up on, like, scientifically? It's, it's like, that's not the point of the story. Like, listen to what the story is saying. You have a tempter. You have a God who's generous and offers you the good life with him to extend the blessing of life with him out into the entire world, the blessing of eating, Eden out there into the, into the entire world. And the tempter comes around and he basically says, like, hey, does God really have your best interest at heart? Look at your circumstances. Look at your circumstances. How could God be good if things aren't so great for you? Things are p- falling apart in your life, in your world, or God's holding out on you, and he wants you to be what? He wants you to be faithful? Live with less than, than other people? Give this up? He wants you to wait? Who waits? Especially now, if, you know, smartphones accompanying us whenever we, you know, like, who waits? Why would God want you to do that? Why would he want you to trust him when things are terrible? How could he expect that of you? And that happened to Adam and Eve in the garden in many ways. Who else did that happen to? What people were called specially by God to be his representatives in the world? Israel. It's the same exact thing. What happened to them, which is what happened to Adam and Eve, they felt deprived of something. Adam and Eve were deprived of food. You can't have that particular fruit from that tree. You can have any other. You can't have that one. Israel was deprived of food in the wilderness. They're hungry. God saved them and, and sent them on, a, on a, a journey to meet with him, and they got hungry along the way. They were deprived. So what was the test? Will you depend when you're deprived? Adam failed. Israel failed. Adam's representative of humanity. This is a human failure, a corporate failure. Um, we repeat their error. If you guys were here when we did the whole Herod, um, fire hose of Herod on everybody, um, of Herod's life, one of the things that Tom mentioned at the end, which I thought was so helpful, is he summarized it like this. It's that idea that, like, I know better. God, I know better. I know better than you do. And that's the temptation. And the enemy's going to be like, yeah, you do know better. Let's go. Let's get out of here. And so there's a sense of like walking away from his goodness, from his generosity, from his grace, and the good life that he gives us into something else because God's not, we feel like God's not good in the midst of it. And the test reveals the truth about our trust. And when we're deprived, it reveals if we're dependent or demanding. When we're deprived of things we feel like we need, it reveals whether we're dependent on him or demanding. Israel was demanding. As you may know, there's a sense of pride and entitlement that they had. We deserve better. We know better. And they walked away. Let's see how Jesus handled his test. You guys ready for this? Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11, says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That word is translated as tempted. Really, it's, it's um, a lot smarter people that, that are Greek experts. They'll, they'll say, they'll tell you. It could, be tempt- it could be translated as tempted or tested. Tempted or tested. And I think temptation, in our context, that word oftentimes has this sense of like, you're being lured to do evil. And it's like, how could God lure Jesus or anyone to do evil? He doesn't do that. But he does test us to reveal what's true about us, about our trust. So think of it that way. It's going to help you make sense of this passage. So the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights... He was hungry. 40 days. I want you to think about that. How many meals typically do you have in 40 days? 120. How many snacks do you typically have in 40 days? 720 to 1,000, right? If you, if you, I want you to imagine for a moment, what are the conditions in which you get really annoyed? Heat, hunger equals hanger, right? Now, I want you to imagine Jesus. And, and I can get hangry after two meals, about 120. I think I'd start to lose it after, like, missing out on snacks six or seven. And he was on 700. So that's where Jesus was at. He was hungry. In fact, um, 
doctors? I don't know who. Somebody who knows the human body better than I do. I uh, was quoted as saying that around 40 days, if you fast for that long, that's about the time when your body will start to break down and have like irreparable damage. So Jesus was on the brink. Verse 3, the tempter approached him and said, look at this timing, the tempter. You're on the brink, your lowest, most vulnerable, weakest. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he answered, Jesus answered, It is written, have, have, have some yum-yums, you deserve it. Like you've, been, you've been working hard, you deserve a break. And Jesus answered, It's written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Did Jesus have the power to turn the stones into bread? He did. Well, how do we know that? We'll keep reading Matthew. He multiplies. He makes bread uh, multiply. He's got power. What does he not have? Permission. Because this was the time that God appointed for him to eat, not fast. He doesn't have permission, not yet. But we'll see what God does, how he takes care of him. Verse 5. Then after that, so that was a fail for the devil. Didn't work. So the devil took him to the holy city, to Jerusalem, to stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, He will give his angels orders concerning you. This is Psalm 91. And they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And I'm going to unpack that temptation a little bit. But Jesus told him, It's also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Don't put him to the test. So there was an offer, an enticement there that the devil gave him in the midst of his uh, anonymity. Jesus was anonymous right now, and he was saying, take your prominence, take your place now. But Jesus saw it as the test of the Lord. He was like, I'm being tested, not him. Verse 8, again, that didn't work. So the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And most likely what's happening here is a vision. So don't think like Satan took him by the hand and spread out his cape and flew. Like, it's not that. It's a vision. Um, The devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to Jesus, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. So first temptation didn't work. Second temptation didn't work. Okay, Satan's just going to, here it is. Here's what I really want. I want your worship. And I'll give you what's yours if you give me what's mine. And then Jesus told him, go away, Satan. Get out of here. It's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him. And then after that, angels came and began to serve him. They brought him snacks, presumably. Whatever you can actually have, I don't know. What could you have after four days of fasting? I don't know. Whatever they gave him, it, it was what he needed in that moment, broth. So here's point number one. If you're taking notes, write this down. Point number one, how does Satan ultimately test Jesus? Temptation number one, it'll be up there in a second. Focus on what's missing and miss what's in focus. Focus on what's missing, Jesus, so that you will miss what is in focus. Okay, what's missing in the story? What does Jesus not have? Food, food. Physical nourishment, right? Extreme heat, extreme hunger, extreme hunger. That whole thing. So Jesus, if he doesn't eat soon, he's in real trouble. He may start to deal with irreparable harm to his body. So that's what's missing, something he needed. What was in focus? For Jesus, What was this whole thing about? It was about his formation. It was about his formation. So Satan's trying to get him to focus on food and miss what was in focus, which is the formation that he needed to go through. I'm going um, to read out of Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 6. This is Israel's story, which is connected to the story that we're reading today, and you're going to see how in a second. Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 6. It's up there on the screen. Go on and follow along. It says, Carefully, this is to Israel, carefully follow every command I am giving you today. 
so that you may live and increase and may enter and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your ancestors. So God has delivered Israel out of their bondage in Egypt, and now this is what's ahead of them. Take the land, but follow every command I'm giving you so that you may take the land. Remember the Lord, verse 2, remember that the Lord your God led you out of the entire, on the entire journey of these 40 years in the wilderness. Okay, connecting the dots. Wilderness, Jesus in the wilderness being tempted and tested by the devil. Israel, here's, here's a recap of their story. Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey of these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. That's the point of the test. It's it's to humble, to humble the follower and to see what was in their heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Sound familiar? 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days for Jesus in his wilderness. He humbled you. And then he gave you manna to eat. What was manna? It was bread. Heavenly bread. This is heavenly provision that God gave the Israelites, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? We just read that a couple minutes ago. Jesus quoted that verbatim to the tempter. Jesus learned the lesson. He got it. I'm going to read a quote in a second that explains it. Every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing didn't wear out. Your feet did not swell these 40 years. Keep in mind the Lord, your God, has been disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Don't think discipline is punishment. Think of training. The Lord's training his people. So keep the commands of the Lord, your God, by walking in his ways and fearing him. So Israel faces the test. Instead of growing in dependence on God, they became demanding. And they were done. It was over for them. Israel was a failed people. They were supposed to be his representatives in the world to show people, this is, what, this is what life in the kingdom is like. It's really good. They failed. I don't want to be too hard on them because I don't think I would have done much better. That's simply that Israel kind of shows us what humanity is like. God delivered them and they made demands of him. Game over. And I've heard, I've heard uh, people who are much smarter talk about it and they kind of described it as like filing for divorce. It was sort of like Israel was like, done. We don't want this anymore. It's very personal. Very, very personal uh, situation that Israel had with God. Very personal betrayal on their part. And I want you to contrast that with the story of Jesus that we just read. Jesus faced the test in his moment of weakness. He had power but not permission to make bread. It was a time to fast, not to feast. So his response to that temptation had massive implications for him and his mission. I've got a quote from R.T. France, if we can put that up there. I think this, this helps a lot. This is from R.T. France. He wrote one of the kind of premier Matthew commentaries of the last 30 years. He wrote, his, Jesus' mission was to be one of continual, uh, I might butcher this word, privation. I looked it up. It's a, being in a state of lack, being deprived. So Jesus was in a state of continual deprivation. It would probably be easier for most of us, for the sake of his ministry of the word of God, a concern for his own material comfort would only jeopardize it. Would only jeopardize it. As son of God, he must learn, as Israel had failed to learn, to put first things first. And that must mean an unquestioning obedience to his father's plan. Um, If you uh, journey with us through the gospel of Matthew, what you're going to see over and over again is that Jesus' conditions were rough. He had to rough it in life. Uh, he was often, uh, he didn't really have a home. Some, you could kind of call him like a bit of a, a wanderer, a homeless, itinerant preacher. Not glamorous, not sexy by any means. Uh, he, he had to learn to live with very little. And so what was this test about in the wilderness? Learning how to live with very little so that he would be ready for what was to come. Now, this is a bit of an aside, but I just want to make a quick note that when you hear, like, unquestioning obedience, for some of you, if you're a parent, you're like, uh-huh. Um, for others of us, especially if we've, like, lived through, um, 
abuse or we've had people who have taken advantage of us. When you hear unquestioning obedience, it might get you going. So the point of this isn't to say that, that the father was um, demanding obedience in a coercive or abusive way. Not the case. What was this? This was the kind of training. Um, we've got firemen in the room. This is the kind of training that you would do if you have a really important job that you need to make sure that you're ready for. Uh, I don't remember where it was. When I was growing up as a kid, we used to go to Angel Stadium, and there was this fire, this building. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? They would, yes. They did training there, right? You guys that are nodding? Yeah. So why? What was the point of that training in the building? Was it to just put firemen through hell? Well, (laughs) what was the end goal? (laughs) They'd be ready because they had a really important job. They need to understand what to do to help trap, rescue, pe- to rescue trap people under the command of a supervisor. Um, you guys have captaincy and those sorts of things, right, in your, in your units? Firemen in the room? Yep, they're nodding, so this is true. You have to understand. Could you imagine if like, we're about to run into a building and, and the, the captain's got like, here's what we're going to do, and you're like, no, we're going to do this instead. What would that do to your teams? Collapse, right? It wouldn't work. And what would the cost be? Lives. So Jesus had to be trained, just like our first responders are trained, to be under the command of a superior and to know what to do, to save lives. That's what Jesus came to do. Um, Imagine a Navy SEAL arguing with their commander during a mission. I see some nodding. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you've seen it. I can't imagine it. Um, I can't imagine it. There has to be trust. There has to be partnership. And so that's what Jesus is getting trained in. He's showing that he's trustworthy. He's dependable. Um, There's partnership. There's privilege in this relationship with God. There's obviously a lot of pain, too, because our world is broken. Um, But that's the point of life, is to become God's partner in extending his kingdom out into the the world. That was Adam's and Eve's. Uh, calling that was Israel's calling. They failed. They failed. Jesus though didn't. Jesus didn't. But he had to be tested, and we're going to be tempted too as disciples. You're going to be tempted to focus on what's missing. Well, missing what's in focus. Your formation. The enemy's going to try to get you to focus on food, your basic necessities, basic needs, or you know, or, or beyond that so that you'll miss the formation that God's trying to do in your life. Here's the crazy part. The last two years have been marked by loss and suffering and hardship and hard times. Every single person in this room, every single person who will hear this message will just nod their head and be like, yep, we've lost a lot. It's a reminder. We all lose things. Sometimes we lose something we value. Sometimes we lose people that we value through the loss of relationship or loss of life. There's loss of health. There's loss of income, status, and reputation. There's respect that we lose sometimes. Sometimes our standing in our workplace, our community, we lose that. Our family. When you follow Jesus, all these things get pushed and tested all the time. Sometimes we deal with food insecurity, housing insecurity. The list is long. But here's the test that we all face. Will we depend on God when we're deprived of everything else? Will we depend on God if, when we're deprived of everything else? And if we don't pass that test, we won't be fit to serve as God's partners to spread this kingdom throughout the world. The test will reveal the truth about our trust. The test reveals the truth about our trust. We have to learn how to depend when we're deprived. We have to. When we don't do that, then we give in to temptation number one. If you guys could put that up there one more time. Temptation number one, to focus on what's missing and miss what's in focus. That's the temptation, first one. But it's not the only one. Temptation number two came, which was to take a shortcut to get your needs met. Take a shortcut to get your needs met. Did you notice that Satan offered a bunch of shortcuts? What were they? You guys could throw the the slide up there with the satanic shortcuts. Uh, Okay, Jesus turned stones into bread. What was that about? Focus on your food, not your formation. Focus on your food, not your formation. Hey, Jesus, throw yourself off the temple. Take your crown without the cross. 
Take your crown without the cross. You don't need to suffer. Why wait? It's yours. Because if he had jumped off the temple, what would that have drawn? Another C word. A crowd. Right? A crowd. Take the crowd without the cross. And then worship me. Once the first two don't, don't work, he's like, he's, all right, guns blazing. Just, I'll give you what you want. You give me what I want. And that was for him to choose his destiny, which he was the king of the nations. We've already seen Jesus honored as the king of the nations. That's why the Magi came. That's your destiny, Jesus. The nations, they're yours. Take them. Take your destiny without your development. There's always going to be some satanic shortcut that gets offered to you if you're a disciple, if you want to develop as a disciple. Which, by the way, if you're here and you're not a disciple, that's the whole point of life. The point of life is that we would become his disciples. When we get to the end of Matthew, you're going to read that Jesus has a commission for the church, and he says what? Go and make disciples. So the creator who gets to determine what life is all about, that was his commission. You don't have to believe that. You don't have to agree with him. That's fine. But I just want you to know that's the point of this whole thing. That's why we're here. That's why we're breathing. Jesus wants disciples who are developed, who can then be deployed, because what's at stake is the salvation of the world, which comes through the rule and reign of God spreading. Jesus' redemptive rule and reign. He's a forgiving king who sits on the throne of grace, and he beckons everybody to come to him. Come and find your life with me. That's the point of life. And you get to be a part of it, and I get to be a part of it. But the enemy doesn't want that. Instead, he offers this, satanic shortcuts. To you and to me, take it now, don't wait. But if we take a shortcut to avoid the discomfort, it'll cost us our development. If we take a shortcut to avoid discomfort, it'll cost us our development. I warned you guys about the alliterations. I wasn't kidding. So, here it goes. I want you to think again about Navy SEALs, okay? I read a fascinating article about Navy SEALs uh, from the Business Insider. I'm going to quote them a lot. How the, This article was called How the Navy's their Navy SEALs. How the Navy's Hell Week reveals who has what it takes to be a SEAL. Think about testing. The testing reveals the truth. There it is. For aspiring Navy SEALs, the selection process is known as basic underwater demolition SEAL. Short buds. It's a six-month series of challenges for their skills and endurance. Maybe the most trying period is called Hell Week. Did anybody go through a Hell Week and for sports, for football or something, yeah. Yep. Was it football? Yep. I remember that at, at school that I went to. There was Hell Week. I remember thinking, glad I'm not there, <laughs> not doing that. Um, so the most, the most trying period of, of the Navy SEALs development is called Hell Week, six week. Uh, sorry, Hell Week is six days. So the whole thing is six months, but Hell Week is six days of just concentrated horrors for, for potential Navy SEALs. And they get thrown through a gauntlet of constant exertion that shrinks their ranks and reveals what they're made of. It's a test. There's three phases. In Hell Week, they put it in phase one. Nice and early, they get it in. Hell Week lasts six days. It's actually a Sunday evening to a Friday morning, during which the students run more than 200 miles, often with boats on their heads. And I've actually seen pictures of this. They're literally like holding up life rafts, rafts. They do hours of physical trainings with logs, which is just, it makes me think of what's the guy that, you know, the strong guy with the logs when we were kids? Paul Bunyan. It's like, we're going we're gonna to turn you into, we're going to see if you got the Paul Bunyan, you know, the stuff, whatever. Logs, literal logs is what they give you, and boats to lift over your head, and it's cold, it's wet, it's sandy, do you know how much sleep you get during the week, during Hell Week? Four. Hours. Not per night. Four hours. Throughout the week. And they're running from, it's 45 miles a day. I had some fun with math. It's 45 miles a day. Do you know how far that is if you were to run from here to somewhere? That's from here to Encinitas. Every day. You're running. Not once, not twice, not thrice, not whatever, four, every, you know. It's crazy. 
And here's three things that they do. This is just a little taste, a sampler platter. They do around the world, which is roughly a 12-hour boat race that involves miles of paddling. The fact that students are already hallucinating. This is, they're hallucinating. (laughs) Because of the lack of sleep makes you hallucinate. Due to the sleep deprivation, adds a level of difficulty and humor. So the instructors like it. They have fun at their expense. (laughs) The winning crew gets a little extra sleep. But the other crews, however, get this. They're, they like that part because they're not alone. They're alone most of the week, so it's like we get to be with other people away from the instructors. That's the around-the-world part, 12-hour boat race. Then there's the mud flats, 15 hours of various events that take place in a mud flat close to the Bud's compound. The mud basically gets into every part of your body. You can use your imagination. And then they do the base tour, which is a miles-long run around the Bud's compound carrying 300-pound rubber boats on your heads. You lose your hair because of it. Um, for me, it's like it equals a playing field. Some of us are losing our hair. It's like, okay. But it's like the, you're just, the boat does it. And you eat 8,000 calories a day and you still lose weight. It's like, what's the effect of all this? What do you think the effect of all this is? People drop. 70 to 85% of those in buds don't make it during buds. So you're talking about almost everyone. And then 90% in the seal pipeline drop out and on the whole during those six months they're done so here's the quote that I thought was so on point this is from a former enlisted seal with time as an instructor he said that true intent or the intent behind hell week's craziness is to get down to a man's true stuff his true identity only when you have barely slept for five days use a different word plus doing crazy evolutions during this whole time he puts you through the ringer while being wet and sandy, do you get to know who you really are? To reveal your true colors. The test in the wilderness is Jesus' spiritual hell week. Satan offered him several shortcuts. He offered Jesus the opportunity to get the grade without the grind, spiritually speaking. He offered him the spiritual six-pack without the sweat. And he said, you can be a steel without the sacrifice. Do you know what Jesus said to that? No. Get out of here. What does that tell you about Jesus? What kind of a man is he? In every point where humanity has failed, Jesus didn't. He got offered a way out of hell week while still becoming a seal, and he said no. Jesus faced temptation number two. So we can throw it back up there again. To take a shortcut to get your needs met. Jesus faced that. And he said no to the shortcut and yes to hell week. <laughs> okay. What did the test reveal about Jesus and his mission? He was ready. Jesus was ready. Why do you think that was so important for Jesus to, 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 reveal, to show I'm ready for this? One day, he would undergo hell for us on the cross. What do, the, what do people tell Jesus when he's on the cross? Save yourself. If you're really the son of God, hey, you're the son of God. huh? King of Israel, king of the nations, come on down from there. If he was ready to stay on that cross, he was ready. He had already said no to the shortcuts. He'd already shown it. He'd already demonstrated, I'm ready. I'm not taking shortcuts. And so Jesus was deployed. He was developed. He was deployed. And then he delivered us from sin. He conquered evil. Evil no longer has to have the final say. Shortcuts don't have to have the final say. Focusing on what's missing instead of what's in focus doesn't have to have the final say. Jesus passed the test in the wilderness so he could save us. That was the Father's will. Hopefully that's good news to you today. Jesus endured hell for you. Hell week for you, for you and for me. He did not take the shortcut. Why is that important again? It took someone totally dedicated to the will of God to save us. If somebody wasn't, they would have taken a shortcut. The testing would have revealed that. And Jesus didn't take it. 
And so what do we get in all this? When Jesus died for us and he was raised for us, he gives us a whole new status, a new identity, a new power. Who led Jesus into the test? Anybody remember? The Spirit. The Spirit. Who was empowering Jesus during the test? Spirit. Who was Jesus depending on? Spirit. Jesus, though being God, he laid aside all his divine privileges and rights, and he lived his life as a fully dependent, submitted human being. In other words, he lived just like we do. And he exchanged. On the cross, he exchanges. He takes our brokenness, our sin, our rebellion, the fact that we've all taken shortcuts, and he gives us his perfect life, his record, his love. And now he's the bread of life. He's our bread in the wilderness. Jesus. So Jesus, when, he was, when Satan offered him the bread, Satan was basically saying, like, take your nourishment now. And Jesus was saying, he's my nourishment. His words are my nourishment. And so now you and I are in the wilderness, and we get tempted, and we get to say, he's my nourishment. He's my bread. So that you can depend on God even when you're deprived of everything else. For his sake. Lost reputation, guess what? He gives you a better one. You've lost income for Jesus' sake, guess what? He gives you every spiritual blessing in heaven. He's going to give you eternal treasures that don't run out or wear out. Have you lost influence because you have chosen to follow Jesus? He makes you a royal son or daughter in his eternal kingdom. Your royalty. Here's a good one Have you lost representation in office? At some point or another, for those of us who are very politically inclined, you will. Jesus represents you before God. Did that do anything for you? Jesus learned to depend on God even when he was deprived of everything else. He was developed, he was deployed, and he delivered as the Messiah. And so the good news is, here's my third thing. If you're taking notes, write this down. God sustained Jesus in his test and he can sustain you too. God sustained Jesus in his test, and he can sustain you too. Did you know that Jesus wants disciples who are developed and can be deployed for the kingdom? Matthew 9, 35 to 38. We're almost done. Matthew 9, 35 to 38. It says this. I think I have a different... Do we have that in the back? Nope. I got you. Just listen. Jesus was going around all towns. This is later in Matthew, so we're going to get to this in a few weeks, but... I'm going to bring it into for this message right now. Jesus was going around all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were weary and dejected like sheep that did not have a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, and many of you know this quote, the harvest is plentiful, but what are few are lacking? Workers. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest that he send out workers into his harvest. In other words, kingdom representatives ready to take the blessing of Eden, of life with God, out into the world. That's what he wanted. What if you and I are those kingdom workers to be sent out into the harvest? What if that's the case? What if that's true? Would you want that? Is that something that interests you? What if you were the kingdom worker, and I am, and we are, and disciples all around the world today are the kingdom workers that he wants to send out in the harvest? What could get in the way? Here's where the rubber meets the road. As we're thinking, we're almost done. What could get in the way? Where might you feel deprived in life or uncomfortable and be tempted to make demands of God? What developmental discomfort are you tempted to avoid as a disciple? Where are you tempted to take a shortcut? I'm just going to offer a couple suggestions. So I think trying to understand our culture, every culture is going to have its own specific temptations. One of the ones that I think is prevalent in our culture is to want deep relationships without revealing yourself. You want to have deep relationships without 
revealing yourself, who you are. This is not possible. And in order for us to be about this kingdom work, we have to have deep relationships with each other. The kind of relationships where you can say, here's who I, here's who I am, here's what I'm struggling with, can you help me? And also the kind of relationships where somebody can say to you, hey, I see this in your life, do you see this? And I don't have perfect insight, but I'm concerned, are you? Because this could get in your way, in the way of your development as a disciple. Deep relationships without revealing yourself or being open, just not possible. And kingdom work stalls out. There's a reality, too, that I think we are tempted in our world to kind of design our life without depending on God for anything. You design your life, but you don't need to depend on God. Like, you can figure it out. Or somebody will come alongside you and tell you, but that is something that's reserved for God. He's the one who's going to develop you and deploy you, and he uses his people to do it. But ultimately, it's his life that he's offering to you, an invitation to know him and walk with him. He gets to make those calls. If you're a disciple, if you're not a disciple, you can do whatever you want, like you're free. But if you are a disciple, we live on his word, we depend on him to nourish us and to lead us. I want to encourage you, disciples fail tests all the time. They just fail tests all the time. But God doesn't give up. Um, We're going to get to this in a few weeks' time. Can you throw up the Peter slide real quick? One of the most, Peter's there for our encouragement, okay? (laughs) Can't read about Peter without feeling better about yourself. There's a really famous story. Actually, could you put it down for a second? I'm sorry, Marshall. I should have set this up there. (laughs) It's going to distract you. Um, Does anybody remember who the first person to call Jesus the son of the, the Messiah was? Outside of God, it was Peter. So there's this moment where Jesus is like, who do the crowd say that I am? Well, you're this person or this person. Who do you say that I am? And Peter's like, you're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, my boy. That's right. What happens after that, though? Disaster. Go ahead and put it up, Marshall. Peter had the right vocabulary. Son of God, Messiah, right? But he totally missed everything else. Jesus' vocation was to come as a suffering servant who would take up the cross. Peter saw him as a conquering king who would take the crown. You're going to deliver Israel from Roman occupation. Jesus' vision was to save humanity. Peter's vision was like, save Israel. You know, I, I don't want to get politically cute here, but it's sort of like, make Israel great again type of thing. But my, again, I'm not trying to get cute because this could be like an, any political side. But that was what he thought. And his values, Jesus' values were like, I want to die for my enemies. And Peter's like, defeat them. Defeat my political enemies. And the verdict on Jesus' life, you're developed for deployment. Peter, get behind me. Get the hell out of here, Peter. You're a detriment to the kingdom advancing. That is a spectacular fail that Peter had. He didn't get it. One of the temptations that we're going to face is to think that because we have the right vocabulary that we're, we're cool that we can call Jesus Messiah, and then that's fine. Here's the temptation. Sorry, I alliterated. It's to cruise with cultural Christianity without really considering Christ. To kind of cruise. This, what Peter, Peter, by the way, I'm a little hard on him. I shouldn't be so hard on him. This is just the thinking of the day. That's just what Israel expected. Can you blame them? They were under the occupation of horrible leadership. So of course they're going to want somebody to defeat their enemies because their enemies are terrible. So to be fair to Peter, I get why he wants that, but the response is still recorded for us. What is the response? Get out of here. You're a detriment to me. You're a detriment to this kingdom advancing. And, and there's going to be a temptation for each of us to cruise around with cultural Christianity playing in our mind without really considering Christ and making changes based on him. And what could end up happening is that we could become a detriment to the kingdom advancing. This isn't a political thing against one side or the other. This is everybody. Progressives, liberal, everybody. Conservatives, it doesn't matter. Even if you're apolitical, there's going to be ways in which we're tempted just to have the vocab of Jesus as Messiah without understanding any of this. These values, this vision, his vocation, becoming like him, being conformed into his image. 
That's what it costs us. When we cruise with cultural Christianity, we're just not conforming to the image of Jesus. And so we want to take over culture and we want to triumph. But what was Jesus' triumph? What was it on? It was on the cross, right? Yeah. He triumphed because God sustained him in his test. And in the ultimate test of the cross, he won. So I want to hear what you're like. What's the encouragement there, bro? Disciples failed tests, but God doesn't give up. How did Peter die? On what? Upside down on a cross. Why was he upside down? I'm not worthy of, you, of being crucified like you. Flip me around upside down. I'm embracing hell week for Jesus. Peter passed his test. Praise God. The failure was found faithful in the end. And that could be true for you today, too. Okay. I have a whole video. I'm going to skip it. Go ahead and stand up. If I could, I'm going to call the band up. There's one particular part of the Navy SEAL training that involves being underwater. And uh, to keep it very brief, you have to do things like tie ropes underwater and you're holding your breath and the instructors are there messing with you. They're actually swimming around like sharks over you. It's, It's really weird. But at the end of it, like they have to get out of that. They have to stay steady under stress. And when they stay steady under stress and pass that test, the instructors come down and they give them the okay. Like there's a moment where you see them going like this. You passed. You passed the test. And what I want you to see is that that's the goal. The, the goal of the test isn't to embarrass you. It's, to, it's for you so that you pass it. And so that in the, the worst moments, like Jesus, you can get face to face with him and you can go, you're ready. Not to embarrass you, not to put you through pointless misery and suffering. Sometimes life feels like pointless misery and suffering. Anybody else? Is it just me? It's not. It's not. The point is for you to pass, just like Jesus did. That you would be developed and deployed into the greatest adventure you could ever imagine. Life in the kingdom of God. Living with him, partnering with him, extending the blessing of Eden to the whole world until he returns. And I want you just, I want to close with this thought. Imagine if... We were a church of developed and deployed disciples, bringing Jesus' kingdom rule and reign everywhere we go. We people of forgiveness, people of self-giving love, people who, when we're around others, we refresh them. They walked away refreshed because they've had an encounter with someone who carries the kingdom. Values, vision, and they're ready. What would that do to our workplaces, our schools? How would our marriages change? How would our parenting be different if we were ambassadors to our children? How would that affect our sports team, our schools, our classrooms, our neighborhood? I could even dare do to imagine that it could affect our politics, which just seems like the most polarized, you know. If it can affect that, it can affect anything. What if that were true of us. Do you know what would happen? God's will would be done on earth here in Temecula as in heaven. The very prayers of Jesus would be fulfilled in the Lord's prayer. Do you want that? Do you want that? It's for you. There's going to be satanic shortcuts offered to you, but also, if this story teaches anything, you have lots of support from God's spirit and his people. So let's, I'm going to pray, then we're going to sing, and then I'll be back up in a few minutes. Father, thank you that though the enemy tempts us, um, the enemy tempts us to take shortcuts, that you showed us that in your son, there's triumph, and that we could experience that kind of triumph with him. He's already given us a new status and identity for those of us who believe in him. And now he can actually give us a new power and a new way through this life of development, of deployment, and a life that's worth living. 
God, we love you. We thank you. Pray that you would do some work in our hearts even now, including mine. We love you in your name. Amen. Okay, let's sing. Enjoy him. I'll be back up. One thing I forgot to mention is that there, if, if anything was stirring up during the message, if you feel like something hit home, uh, we have a prayer team in the back. They have lanyards back there. I want to just encourage you, this is the time to respond, to praise. And if you feel like you want prayer, there's safe people that we know and trust that would love to pray for you to see God bring these things to bear in your life. Uh, and one thing I forgot to mention uh, in the midst of my message was just that, which is so easy to just miss, miss this. It's that there are ways in which we experience hard things that would kind of lead us to want to grumble and complain against the Lord. And that's something that we're all tempted with. But I just want to just, as we learn from the story of Israel, it's not as benign as it, as it seems. So if, if anything stirred up for you, especially anything to do with grumbling, complaining against God, feeling um, like God is really holding out on you, please go get prayer. I promise you he's not, but it doesn't feel that way in the moment. So prayer's available. Let's keep singing. We'll be back up to close in a little bit. and grab a seat and I close this up real quick. Um, as I was driving over here, uh, I had a moment where I thought about uh, a movie and I was like, I have no movie references, so I got one. Uh, who's seen the movie Glory? Yes, we got some fans in the house. Fantastic movie. If you don't know about that movie, it's about, it's set in the time of the Civil War, and there's basically like an all-black regiment in the Union, and they are sent into battle. But before they get sent into battle, what happens to them? What do they have to go through? Training. Like, significant training. And I remember watching the movie a few months ago and just being, like, struck by one moment where they are going through the training and it really feels like the union, um, the, the people who are training them are just so hard. Like so hard. It was one of those moments where it's like, why are you so hard on me? You know, like the, 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 the soldier could look to the trainer and just be like, why are you being so hard on me? And the reality was that they were going to face far worse on the battlefield. Way worse. So they were getting those soldiers ready. If you've watched the movie, if you know the story, they go through that tough, tough testing and they triumph. And then they turn the tide of the war. Glory. What could be more glorious than that? And I, I just want to leave you with this thought. We go through tough testing as disciples. It is not to mess with us or to put us down. It's not that. The tough testing that you go through is meant to lead you to triumph and it follows in the wake of Jesus who triumphed and turned the tide of the war. Just like at that point in the war, the, the union's going to win, the kingdom is going to spread to the ends of the earth. It's inevitable. It's the unstoppable spread of his love. All the enemy can do is slow it down. Try to. By distracting us, by giving us shortcuts, by trying to throw off our development. That's all he can do. He's, he's done for. He's like an airplane that's lost its engines. And all you could do is like you could configure the plane to extend the glide slope to try to stay airborne as long as you can. But that puppy's going down. It's out of fuel. That's the kingdom of darkness. And he tries to extend his glide slope by throwing us all off through temptation. But the good news is, as you're being tested, you have to remember that it's meant to lead you to triumph, Jesus' triumph, and the tide of the war is already turned. And you get to be a part of that. So I'm going to pray us out. We're still going to have some people available to pray, and I'll be up here if you want to talk. Father, thank you that your tough testing with your son Jesus led a triumph that turned the tide of this war at the end of the war of good and evil, of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, that it ends in victory for Jesus the Messiah. The kingdom of darkness hates that and wants to delay that as much as possible.
And I thank you that today, through your word, you've really given us a window so we can walk clearly without confusion about how the enemy tries to throw us off and what's at stake. And I thank you that just as you sustain Jesus in his testing, you can sustain us in our testing as well. We love you, Father, and we thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. If you have children, please go grab them. Enjoy your Sunday. See you soon.